you'll uh, turn your Bibles to Galatians 1, we're going to continue our study with two verses. Um, I'm going to read those, and then we're going to pray and get started on the sermon. Galatians 1, starting in verse 11, it says, For I make known to you, brothers, that the gospel which I am proclaiming as good news is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the only hope that any of us have is this gospel that is not according to man. The, the gospel that says that you as our creator, the one who formed us out of the dust, that, that you created us, that you gave us grace, and we have committed high treason against you. Lord, that we have sinned, that we have set up false gods, and ultimately we've set up ourselves as gods. But Lord, you were not content to let your creation suffer under the curse, but instead you sent your son. In the fullness of time, he came in the form of a man, and not only as a man, but he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And that he died for our sins, he was pierced for our iniquities, he was crushed for our transgressions, and on the third day, he rose again to the hope of all mankind. And he ascended to sit at the right hand, where he rules today. Lord, that is our hope. It is a gospel that man could not come up with in our fallenness and our sinfulness. But Lord, to the great glory of your name and to the great revelation of who you are, you have given us this gospel. So Lord, may it do its work today as it's preached. We pray these things in your name. Amen. The only hope of mankind is the gospel. Every man born... And every woman and every little boy and every little girl has the same problem. And that problem is is that we are separated from a holy God. That God cannot live among us as we sin and as we fall away and as we follow our own paths wherever they would go. And they always go to the same places. They go to self-glorification. They go to selfishness. They go to strife and war and envy and maliciousness and hatred, disunity, fractiousness, quarrelsomeness. They go to those junk drawers of sin that Paul's going to get to as we follow through Galatians. But there is a hope, and that hope is is that Jesus has done everything. Contrary to what the false teachers that are following around and are troubling the people in Galatia are saying, Jesus has accomplished all the work. And this, this accomplishment is pivotal for us to understand. At CBC, we have a mission and vision. The mission of CBC is that we are glorifying God by equipping the saints to live righteously and to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. That should sound familiar. Sounds a lot like the Great Commission, which is the mission statement for every church of the gospel, because Jesus is the one who gave us the mission. Our vision, which gives us a little bit of a distinctive, our vision here is to be a replicating church who plants churches in northwest Arkansas and to the ends of the earth. If we are to do these things, we can never lose sight of the main thing. And that is an easy thing to do. As we follow good things, as we follow worthwhile things, it's easy to lose sight of the main thing. And that non-negotiable that has to be central to everything we do here is the gospel. And this is not a gospel that I have formulated or that Bart come up with or that we sat at a meeting and scratched out on a table. This is the gospel delivered by Jesus Christ. There have always been challenges to the gospel from its beginning. And Paul was no different. 
The church of Galatia is seeing challenges to the gospel. And as we've looked at the last couple of weeks, this challenge was a really tricky challenge. The challenge was simply, hey, it's good if you want to follow Jesus, but what you need to do is do what we always did and get circumcised also. Jesus plus circumcision. Inward change, outward sign. And Paul comes in harshly and says that this is a false gospel. This will lead people to hell. So friends, this morning, that gospel has not changed, and the false gospels that challenge the gospel have not changed their packaging. If you were to ask a normal person in America today how they're going to get to heaven, you would hear some variations of the same kind of false gospel. It might be something like, well, I'm going to make sure that my good works outweigh my bad works, that I'm generally a good person, and so God would not send a good person like me to judgment. We might hear something like, the gospel is to pray a sinner's prayer when you're a kid so that you can have fire insurance, and therefore you're right with God through the power of this confession, and that fruit or no fruit, you're good with God for all the days of your life. It might be something like the gospel of accepting everyone and coexisting with one another so that we can love each other. It might be a gospel that's something like, the gospel is we need to be spiritual and we need to look for the right path to take and that everyone would go their own way and they'll join us on this path because how could a loving God ever put anyone in hell? I propose to you that those are some of the, go- the false gospels that assault us today. And we hear them because every false gospel tries to make itself a gospel. We know from the past wars of the last four or five years in the social justice controversy that the social justice thing that packaged itself was that we need to... We need to make reparations. We need to change all the injustices of the past. This is a gospel issue. It would be said over and over again. This is a gospel issue because all the false gospels are counterfeits of the real gospel. I asked this morning, is the gospel truly an unchangeable, invincible, miraculous work of God that glorifies him, truly changes us, and is the banner for every true church of God to gather around, or is it false? That's the question. And that's what Paul is going to push us to, is he's going to draw a dividing line in the sand this morning, that we cannot play around with the gospel. There's only two options for gospels. There's God's gospel, or there's the gospel according to man. And so we have to be very good at spotting the difference between these different kinds of gospels, one of which is no gospel at all. Our decision to hold to the correct gospel matters more than any other possible thing that we can dedicate our hearts, our lives, our minds, our treasures, our time, our attention, and our allegiance to. So let's look at this true gospel. We've got three points this morning. One of them might seem strange, but that's not the first one. The first point this morning is that the gospel did not come from man. Bart and I were talking this week. This, this text is not a difficult text to understand. I will tell you, I don't want to whine about it, but I will tell you it is a difficult text to preach because I'm not going to unveil any spiritual guru stuff on you that's like, well, man, look how smart that guy is. There's nothing like that. You can read the text, the verses mean what they mean, and I have very little to add to what they mean. What we want to do instead is look at how they, how they change things, right? What do they mean? They mean that Paul did not make up this gospel, that it was given him directly by Jesus Christ, and that it is not a gospel that man came up with. So if the gospel did not come, up from, come from man, it stands outside of man entirely. It was promised by God, and it was delivered entirely through his divine power. 
So Paul's critics were following him around. He had, he had a gaggle of people following him around, trying to ruin the work anywhere he went, trying to bother the churches that he had planted. And what these, what these false teachers were doing was they were, they were going to these churches where Paul had planted, and they were coming in, they were saying, hey, this Paul guy, he might be really charismatic. He might have been persuasive. Like, he might have made you think that he was a good guy, but what he was doing was he was peddling a populist gospel, that what he was saying is to the Jews, like, yeah, go ahead and be a Jew and worship Jesus. But to the Gentiles, just worship Jesus. It'll all be good. See, he's, he's telling different things to whoever he's standing, standing in front of. He's kind of like a modern American politician with his gospel. And what Paul does is he, makes, he, he takes that claim. He takes the claim that, they are, that he is propping up a populist gospel, that he's trying to just sound like whoever he's talking to, and he makes a stupendous claim. Don't miss it here, because if I was to get up here this morning and make the same claim that Paul makes this morning, you would rightfully leave this church and tell everyone to never listen to that crankpot rice guy again. Because what Paul says is that the gospel he is proclaiming did not come from any man whatsoever. And furthermore, that he wasn't even taught it by God, but he received it completely intact by a revelation from Jesus Christ. Understand what that means. He doesn't say that Jesus taught him the gospel. He says that Jesus gave him the gospel. He received the gospel. Mankind was never taught the gospel. Mankind has to receive the gospel. This morning, I can't teach you the gospel. You have to receive the gospel. You can learn all about it. You can learn its many facets, and there are thousands of them. You can see its deep application in the Christian life. You can see how it calls the lost man to repentance. But if you don't receive it, you don't have it. And so Paul makes this claim. And what he does is it directly brings into play his credibility. Right? So if Paul is going to say, I'm not teaching a gospel that was given according to man. I received this gospel. I was not taught it. This comes into claim, well, Paul's a lunatic. right? Or Paul received a revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ that gave him this gospel that planted these churches. How do we know the difference? How do we analyze someone who claims to have been given a revelation directly from God? Well, first, we have to look at the meat of what Paul has done in his ministry. So first, remember the claim. Paul is going around telling people what they want to hear, that he's trying to build this stuff up to boost his own ego. Paul refutes this claim, and he's going to do it in great detail in next week's sermon. But what Paul does is he, he reveals to them he famously did not use his apostleship to gain natural gain or money, even though it was well within his authority to do so. People who preach the gospel can rightfully make a claim to make their living preaching the gospel. But Paul did not do this because Paul was a little bit different. 1 Corinthians 9 gives us some insight into Paul's motivation and how he sees this. Starting in verse 16, he says, For if I proclaim the gospel, I have nothing to boast, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not proclaim the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will I have a stewardship entrusted to me, what then is my reward? That when I proclaim the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my authority in the gospel. This is what Paul's saying. He's, he's hard to understand sometimes, according to Peter, right? This is what Paul is saying in that text. He's saying he has no choice about whether or not to, pre to preach the gospel. If he did have a choice, 
then he could get a reward from it. But he doesn't preach the gospel voluntarily. He preaches it under compulsion. God has compelled Paul to preach the gospel. He has no other choice. And because he has no other choice, it's not about a reward. It's about a stewardship entrusted to him. Paul has been given stewardship of the gospel. It's not his. He doesn't own it. But he's caretaking, and he's going and spreading it out to the churches. And because of that, he doesn't want rewards to get in the way of his message. Because Paul was a different kind of apostle because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And when, historically, the gospel was going to go to the Gentiles to the great glory of King Jesus, there were going to be stark and harsh challenges because the Jews did not like the Gentiles. Okay, The Jews had had the oracles of God throughout history, and now the floodgates are opening, and people are following the name of God all over the place in the Gentile world. And so Paul, as the special apostle to the Gentiles, he's not taking any money because he doesn't want any claims made against what his motivations are. And also because a thing has happened, because he has been given the revelation of the gospel by Jesus Christ, and that owns him. We saw it last week in verse 10 where he says that he is a slave to Christ, a slave A slave has no choice in the matter. A slave's choices are one of two, obey the master or take the punishment of disobedience. This is not a shoe shine that Paul is hawking from door to door. This is the very message of Christ to his people that Paul is stewarding. And so in this this case, Paul has no motivation to teach a populist gospel. He is, in fact, compelled to tell the true gospel because he's seen Jesus. And for Paul, don't don't forget this when you read Paul. That changed everything for him. When he was stricken blind at Damascus, it changed everything for him because he saw this revelation and he sees further revelation, and so he will spend out his life with compulsion to preach the gospel. The second reason, and what we should always do today, when someone claims to have a word from the Lord, when someone claims to be speaking for the Lord, what we must do is we must examine their words against what the Lord has said. And in Paul's case, the scriptures themselves testify to the truth of Paul's gospel. And they've done it from the beginning, first in shadows, then becoming vivid, and then becoming completely manifest through Christ when the word became flesh. So let's look at the very beginning. Not like last time I preached. We'll go fast here. Genesis 3.15. This is the proto-evangelical. Okay, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is a clear prophecy from the very beginning of creation that says that God is going to crush his enemy with the seed of the woman, but that his enemy is going to strike at the seed of the woman and kill him too. This is the gospel told in Genesis 3 on what is a very, very, very young earth. Very young. Pretty shadowy though, right? I don't don't think Abraham was thinking that Jesus was going to come, be buried, raised again on the third day at this point. I think what he knew was that God was going to send a deliverer, that God was going to send a king. But we pick it up in Isaiah, and, and you can read Isaiah and get the whole gospel. Isaiah 42 it's one, of the, uh, it's one of the prophecies of the suffering servant. One of my favorite passages in Isaiah, and I'm going to read two verses out of it. Starting in verse 1, he says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. 
Who can bring justice to the nations besides God? So what does he say? He's a chosen one. The Spirit is on him. He's going to bring justice. Skipping down to verse 6, he says, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will also take hold of you by the hand and guard you, and I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who inhabit darkness from the prison. Sounds like Isaiah is getting to something, that there's going to be a king who comes and sets things to rights, and then to eliminate all doubt. The pen of Isaiah writes chapter 53. And I would love to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read three verses here. Isaiah 53, 10. And I ask you, is this the clear gospel 700 years before Christ came? It says, But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities, therefore I will divide for him a portion with the many. And he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. 700 years, maybe 750 years before the book of Galatians is written, God has given in great detail what the nature of the gospel is going to be. That it's going to be his servant who has his spirit on him, who is the chosen one, who is the seed of Eve, who is going to come to bring justice to the nations, who's going to be counted among the transgressors, who's going to pour out his life, who is going to be a ransom for many, and who is going to bear the sin of many. Is that not the gospel that Paul has brought to the church of Galatia? The gospel is outside of the ideas of man. It's outside of the factions of man, and it's outside of any sort of human effort. Therefore, it's a clear dividing line. Mankind would never come up with this gospel. We are far too infatuated with ourselves. Our gospel would look like every false gospel that's out there. If you do good, then God will have to give you a ticket into his presence. That is a misunderstanding of man and a misunderstanding of God because the misunderstanding of man is that man cannot set his mind to do good because man is entirely wicked. We know this from the very early days. If you're blessed to have children, you will see that it does not take them long to reveal themselves as the selfish glory hogs that we all are. Me, 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 mine, mine, mine. Now, now, now. That is the call of humanity. When we get older, we just get the ability to hide it a little bit better. And that makes our souls be in more precarious positions because we can fool ourselves into thinking that we are righteous when what we've done is we've committed high treason against the only one who can call us righteous. But it's also a misunderstanding of God because this kind of idea that we can bargain with God and gain our salvation by doing good works is to say that God owes us something, to say that God is not holy, and to say that God can allow sin in his presence. And all of these things are not true. God cannot dwell with sin. If sin comes into the presence of God, it dies. If mankind comes into the presence of God, he will die. He has to be cleansed and made righteous. And so that is the great hope that Paul preached to the people in Galatia. It was simply this. 
Christ has died for your sins. He has made a way where there was no way. You had nothing to do with it. There is no external marking, no effort, nothing you can do by your will that's going to make you right with God. But Jesus loved you before you were ever an idea, and he sacrificed himself to ransom you so that you could come into the presence of God with your sin removed. Do you understand, Christian? Your sin is removed. It's gone. We still live in this body, and this body has its fleshly pursuits. And this body wants to sin against God. But for the Christian, we've been given a new heart. And this heart longs to be righteous. And this heart loves God and wants to be part of his family. And so it is critically important for us to understand that the gospel was not made by mankind. It was not come up with at a council. It was not written out by people in the Middle East in the ancient days, the gospel was God's plan from the very beginning. And what he did was he progressively revealed it to us with the full blinding color that we see today. Because today, do you realize, Christian, that we have the promises that were given to all the Old Testament people of God that he promised in Leviticus that he would be their God and that they would be his people and that he would live among them? He could only live among them in a sectioned-off box because their sin was too great to approach that box. And to approach that box without making atonement for the sins of the people, you would surely die. But today, God lives unboxed in this room. He has come to live with us, and indeed, he lives inside of us the seal of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the very presence of God who reveals to us the very character of God. That's what we have. That is the gospel that man could have never come up with and that man could never even conceive of a God who could come up with this kind of gospel. We are far too inwardly turned to think of something like that. So why does it matter? We, I think, in the American church, oftentimes we will turn this to be only our personal salvation. And I'm not diminishing the importance of that. Obviously, our Individual eternal salvation is a matter that is very much our concern. But the fact that the gospel did not come from man also gives authority in the gospel. Because the authority of the gospel comes from God himself. Paul had the authority to preach the gospel because it was not his gospel. We have the authority to preach the true gospel today and to proclaim it to our friends even when they're going to hate us because it's God's message, not man's message. And God desires that men, women, boys, and girls everywhere would be saved. Much like in the Pilgrim's Progress that I'm reading to Abby and Charlotte right now, that evangelists constantly come into the city of destruction because God wishes that children of destruction would become children of the blessing. He sends people out. We must be sent. It means that there's urgency, that this is God himself who has made this gospel, that this is God himself who has made this request, and no human can be made right with their creator, and we are all dying. It is given to man to die. We will all die. We don't know when, and there is urgency because the true gospel needs to be spread. The clock is ticking, and we cannot arrogantly assume that time's on our side. Also, we have the hope of the gospel. Hebrews says that hope is the conviction of things unseen. We have the hope of the gospel because since it's not of man, it cannot be changed. And since it's not of man, it can be trusted. 
God has declared it to be so, and therefore it cannot be otherwise. So there's our, there's our look at the text, point one. The gospel didn't come from man. That's what that text is about. Let's look a little bit at the gospel and its source. This is point two. The gospel and its source were meant to be proclaimed. The source was meant to be proclaimed. We often miss that. We proclaim the content of the gospel, but I think we miss sometimes that we also need to proclaim the source of the gospel. The gospel is the king's good news, not our good news. And because it's the king's good news, the source is important. We are delivering a message from God. Now, if if that will not make people look at you like you're crazy, I don't know what will. But we know here from Galatians 1, 11 and 12, that when we proclaim the gospel, we are delivering a message from God to people. We are speaking as though the Spirit of God is speaking through us because these are the words of God. In our day, it's easy to believe that proclaiming it is an innovation of the New Testament. We think, well, God kept all this stuff to his people in the Old Testament, and then when Jesus came, it blew the doors off and it went everywhere. So now we have this gospel that's really for everybody. But I hope you'll understand that God's gospel has been the gospel from the beginning, progressive revelation, but it has always been his desire that the people of the world would be blessed through the proclamation of who he is. He's done that with covenants of man. And there are six great covenants because we're Baptists here. He makes a covenant with Adam. Look at the, I want to I draw you a through line here from the beginning. The proclamation of the source of the gospel. He makes a covenant with Adam. God speaks, he covers the earth. He tells Adam to go and take dominion. He does this for the good of all the earth. Adam is to take dominion, to name everything, to be fruitful and multiply for the good of creation. Moving on with Noah. God speaks to Noah. God saves humanity through his word. Remember, Noah is on the ark because he listened and heeded the voice of God. This was the word of God delivered by revelation to Noah. Noah got on the ark and the world was saved. And then he promises not to destroy it in the same manner for the good of the earth. Do you see what's going on here? God's gospel, God's interaction is for the good of his people. Then with Abraham, this is the most obvious one. Abraham, God speaks to him. He makes a covenant. He promises to give Nathan to give Abraham to make him a great nation and to give blessings to those who bless Abraham and curses to those who curse him. This directly applies to Christ in our day. If you want to be blessed, bless Christ. If you want to be cursed, curse Christ. How do you bless Christ? By accepting, by receiving his gospel. How do you curse him? By saying, nah, I think I'm good on my own. Moses, God speaks to Moses. He reveals the distance of his people from holiness. But he also makes a way for fellowship. This revelation shows the beauty and righteousness of God's law, and it codifies what was already written on our hearts. Thus we are judged by it, and Jesus gives us the love of the law and righteous standing with the law. With David, God promises a never-ending kingdom through the line because David loved God with his whole heart. This king was to demonstrate the greatness of God's law so that other nations would marvel and be drawn to the kingdom for the good of the earth. Every interaction that God had in the Old Testament 
was for the good of the earth. And the reason that it didn't go far past the people of Israel was because they were the wild grapes who did not bear much fruit. They kept it to themselves and they hold up and they did not show the surpassing greatness of God to the nations because they constantly swapped God for idols. The church cannot be that way. Because Jesus is the true vine, and Jesus has the cultivated grapes that are juicy and big and pleasing to eat. Jesus is the true Israel, because today the gospel goes forth because Jesus is the better Israel, and because his church has been given the power of the Holy Spirit. The purpose was the same, that God would be known throughout his creation. And what we see in Galatians is some of the work that the floodgates are open, that Gentiles all over the place are coming to this gospel that is being proclaimed to the nations, that we sit here today across the ocean because the gospel went forth to the Gentiles, because when Jesus, the true Israel, came and made way for man, there was no way that a people group or an ethnos was going to hold that in, together anymore. It's been blown up. Paul has to communicate that the gospel is not of men because men will argue with it and glorify themselves. The gospel, according to men, is changeable, and it does change with the culture. We see it in many of the false religions to our day that constantly bend over backwards to to meet with the spirit of the age. Just to name one, just to name one, Mormonism, family values, right? Marriage, very important. But today we see Mormons caving to the secular God of LGBT and all of this stuff. And the reason why is because it's a false gospel. And false gospels that appeal to men are always going to bend over backwards to be like the culture. They have no roots to stand against the culture. Only God's word can do that. I want you to see as Paul communicates this, he uses really similar language to more fleshed out language in Romans 2. Okay, We like Romans 1. We like Romans 1 as Christians because we get to point our finger at the world outside and say, yeah, you have substituted the knowledge of the creator for creation, and you've worshipped creation. We go, yeah, bad, bad stuff. And it's true. But what we don't like is in Romans 2 when the finger points back at us. Because I submit to you, to any of you who are blessed like me to grow up in a Christian home, this is far more applicable to you than Romans 1. Here's what Paul says in verse 14. He says, For when Gentiles do not have the law, naturally do the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Here's what I want to tell you. Every person born because we're in God's image, we have a conscience that speaks of the truth of God's law. Okay, We know when we do things wrong, and the reason that we know that we do things wrong is because God has given a law into our hearts, even to the Gentiles without revelation, so no one can stand and say that God owes them anything. I was just ignorant. That's not the way it works. Paul goes on to address the attitude and foolishness of the gospel of man. Listen to it here. He is really dealing directly with those who would say in Galatians, you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Jesus is not enough. This is what Paul says. You who boast in the law, through your transgression of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. 
But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man observes the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, will he not judge you who through the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Man says, you have to change what's on the outside. You have to change what you do. You have to clean it up. You have to be moral. Man says that to be righteous, you have to do all the love your neighbor stuff. God says, it doesn't matter what's on the outside. God says the true Jew is the one who was circumcised in his heart. Let's summarize a difficult passage once again. Paul kind of hard to understand, right? Let's summarize. He says, the one who follows the law is circumcised in the heart, making his physical circumcision or uncircumcision meaningless. This comports with what's going on in Galatians. I want you to understand something. If you've never heard this before, I want to tell you now. You cannot follow the law. That's what Paul is saying. You can't follow the law. The only way that you can follow the law is that you are inwardly a Jew. How can you do that? How in the world can that happen? Can any of you inwardly become a Jew? No. The only thing we could possibly do, let's say I wanted to be a Jew, I would have to do outward adherence. I can't do the inward stuff. This goes with Psalm 119, the great book, the great psalm about the law. Verses 1 and 2 says, How blessed are those whose way is blameless. Who will walk in the law of Yahweh? How blessed are those who observe his testimonies. They seek him with all their heart. Anybody tried that lately? Have you tried to be blameless? Do you walk in the law of Yahweh with all your heart? No human being can accomplish that. James makes it even more hopeless. In verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Do I need to say it clearer? We are lawbreakers. We are all lawbreakers. The first time you sinned, you deserve death. Well, that doesn't sound fair, right? Well, it's a, it's a good example. If you lie to your mom, you get spanked. If you lie to your boss, you get fired. If you lie to a judge, you get thrown in jail. If you lie to the president, you're treasonous and you might get executed. If you lie to God, you are dead. It's that simple. It's not about the severity of the sin. It's about the majesty of the one sinned against. God will not have sin in his presence. Every soul sitting in this room today has sinned against their God. And we all stand condemned because if we've broken one part of the law, we've broken the whole thing. And when you read the Ten Commandments, you would be hard-pressed to find any one of the Ten Commandments that you didn't break this week. The situation seems hopeless, and that's why the source of the gospel is so important. Because God is the only one who could make a way around that. He's the only one. We're dead. We can't circumcise our hearts. All we can do in our own power is change what we do on the outside. We can't change the ravening, glory-hogging fool that we are on the inside. 
We know, we know that we want it to all be about us. But God says the gospel is all about him. And the gospel is the only salvation that we can possibly have. So if we want to powerfully proclaim the content of the gospel, we have to understand the source. And that should help us Christians because we know that it's not our own power, it's not our own ingenuity, it's not our own wisdom, it's the wisdom of God. So what do we do? We now proclaim the content. And the content is what we read in the call to worship. 1 Corinthians 15, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed is good news to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I proclaim to you is the good news, unless you believe for nothing. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I want to... I want to draw your attention to a couple of parts of the content, okay? You received it. You received it. But then when you receive it, you stand on it. That means that you're not moving. Recalls my favorite psalm, Psalm 1. It's about standing. It's about being rooted. It's about a tree rooted by its water source. But then it says, if you hold fast... The idea here is that we receive it, we stand on it, and then we hold on to it for dear life like a life raft. If you let go, you will die. If you let go, you'll drown. In the Pilgrim's Progress, many obstacles confront Christian. There's many chances to turn aside. So it is with us, and that's why, that's why Bunyan's work is looked at with the reverence that it is. Is because he captures perfectly what the Christian life is like. That we have this gospel and we have to hold on to it no matter what it looks like everywhere else we look and no matter what anyone else says to us. And that's what Paul is telling the people in the church of Galatia. You have to hold on to this thing. Do not let it get mixed up with this thing that's going to kill you. Hold on to it. I proclaimed it. You received it. Stand on it and hold on to it. And eventually what's going to happen? God will make good on all of his promises. But guess what? We don't even stand in it and hold on to it by our own effort. We hold on to it because Christ holds on to it for us. Did you know this? You wanted that little sliver, didn't you? You wanted that piece. That's what we do is we go, sure, I believe the gospel, but now I've held on to it. Such is the hopelessness of man. But Paul doesn't leave us that option. No, you have to receive it by revelation of Christ. And when we remember that, what we remember is that even if we hold on to it, oh foolish Galatians, are you going to complete by the flesh what was started in the Spirit? Oh foolish Christians, are we going to depend on our own self-effort and our own will to be sanctified? Are we going to perfect ourselves what was accomplished in us miraculously by the Spirit? May that not be so. It's so critically important that we understand that this message of God, that it's the only way, that it's always been the only way, it was the shadowy gospel of Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jonah, and so many others. If you go back and read in the Old Testament, and now you have the light of Christ, you can see the gospel bleeding out all through the Old Testament. Sometimes more obvious, sometimes more shadowy, but always there, that God was always making a way for his people. And they had nothing to do with it. 
Did Noah save himself? Or did God save him? Did Adam save himself? Or did God in his divine mercy and grace forestall the death penalty? Adam received death, but he lived on to be fruitful and multiply because of God's grace. Did we save ourselves? Or did we receive it through the power of the Spirit? Let's look really quickly the supernatural implications of Revelation. We're going to go a lot more here as the weeks go on. But it's important to know that Paul makes a claim repeatedly in Galatians. And that claim is that he was not sent from men, but he was sent through Christ. He starts the book this way. Verse 1, Paul an apostle, not sent from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. A verse that becomes mundane to us through repetition. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, you've heard this one a million times, but I want you to focus in on where Paul says the authority comes from. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was being betrayed took bread. Why does Paul keep saying this? What is the implication? If he truly did receive this from Jesus, what does that mean for us this morning? I think the answer is, is in 1 Corinthians 2. Now bear with me again. It's kind of a twisty barnacle here, and I'm going to try to unwind it for us. All right, Verses 9 through 11, Paul writes, But just as it was written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. But to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the depths of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the depths of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. What is the point of Christianity? I mean, it's catechism number one, right? The chief end of man is to glorify God. Is not the point of Christianity to rightly follow Christ, to know him? What's the point of any of that if we can't do it? Well, what Paul says in this section is, is he says that the wisdom imparted by the Spirit of God is the only way to know God. Do you understand the impossibility of the man-made... I hope I'm hammering it, because that's what Paul's doing. It's impossible for man to know God. It's impossible. We can't even get near him because he's holy. The only way that we can know God is by, through the Spirit, him revealing himself to us. So the whole point of Christianity is for us to receive what he's given, and to know God. And the way we know God is not because of our big brains. It's because the Spirit gives a wisdom to us. It flies directly in the face of our wisdom. Our wisdom says that we have good intentions. Our wisdom says that we can learn enough to please God and that we can know God through our knowledge of Scripture. Notice that Paul doesn't say, he does not say that you're going to learn God by memorizing all of his scripture. Look, it's a good thing. But the path to Christian maturity, the path to Christianity is entirely through the Spirit of God and the power of God through the gospel of God. Hopefully this should challenge and comfort us. Three things to walk away with here. Number one, nature cannot bring us to the gospel. We can't observe God's creation and come to the gospel. We can't observe the way human beings are and come to the gospel. Our faith is rational because we have a book. 
But our faith does not come from our observation or our theological knowledge. It comes from a supernatural truth that has to be accepted by faith. And where do you get the faith? It's by grace through faith that we are saved. Did you know that your very belief in the gospel was given to you by the grace of God? We never came to it. God gave it to us. Praise to him. That's why Paul can hardly write of such things without breaking into song. Paul, the persecutor of the way, brought low by Christ, received the gospel, and poured out his life for it. Our minds are corrupted by sin, but they're being transformed daily as we depend on God to sanctify us. You want to be sanctified? Pray to God to be sanctified. You want to be more holy in your life? Pray that God will make you more holy. Where is the prayer in the church these days? Are you on your knees crying out to God to make you holy? Because there's no other way. And if you're lost and you don't know what I'm talking about this morning, cry out to God that he might save you. Did you know that that very prayer comes from him? We have to pray and we have to trust in his will. We know in confidence that he's already made a way and that it's not through our efforts. So guys, you can't mess it up. You can't mess it up. Everything that he's ordained to happen is going to happen. That does not make us fatalists. It does not make us just let our hands go up and say, well, whatever will be, will be. You know what it does? It makes us slaves. It makes us slaves who obey our master. Number two, number one, we cannot get to the gospel through our observation or through our learning. Number two, we can argue for the truth of the gospel, and we should, but God must not be put on trial by created man. God changes hearts. We are witnesses of what he has done. The credibility of the gospel transcends us. We don't have to worry about dressing up the gospel. We don't have to worry about marketing. What we have to worry about is delivering the truth of God's gospel. Repent. And believe. And oh, by the way, all of that came from him. You are a lawbreaker. Repent and believe. We can't take out pieces of the gospel. We have to give the whole thing. And we don't need to be embarrassed of it. We need a nation of Christians that are not embarrassed about what God has said. Number three, just for our confidence, Paul's claim in this text was examined, witnessed, and backed up by Scripture by the people he's talking to. Scripture is self-attesting. It is consistent. It is divine. It is powerful, and it's alive. The Scripture cuts to the heart of man, so we have to rely on it instead of trying to dress it up, instead of trying to ignore the parts that we're a little bit ashamed of. The next time you come across a passage that you're a little ashamed of, why don't you just stew on that one for a couple of weeks and tell it to somebody and see God's wisdom in his Scripture? God draws a dividing line, and that line is whether we will bow the knee to Christ in his rule or whether we will depend on ourselves to make a way where there is no way. The choice is very clear this morning for us. Are we going to follow Christ, or are we going to follow our own way? I pray that we would follow Christ, and this church is doomed if we do not. It's the only hope, but in confidence we know this. Whatever this church is meant to accomplish is going to happen because it's based on his power and not ours. So let's pray with that happy thought.
Lord, we depend on you. You are mighty and awesome to save. Lord, how, how comforting it should be to us to know that your gospel was not an invention of man, but how challenging and how convicting it should be to us to know that we have a duty an obligation to respond. Lord, for we are but created man, and you are the creator, and so you have an ownership claim on us. Lord, we're thankful for your gospel. We're thankful that you came to save us. We're thankful that you have made a way into the presence of God. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who does not know you, Lord, that these words have been pounding on their heart, Lord, that the scripture cuts, that we're not confident in our own holiness, that we're not confident in our moralism, that we're not confident in denying your existence, but Lord, that all of our confidence would come from you. I pray that if if anyone does not know you, that they would cry out to you this morning as, as so many of us have done, knowing that salvation is by a miracle, that it's not something that we will into existence, it's something you do. Lord, I was encouraged by that thought this week with a dear brother telling me about the day everything changed for him. Lord, I pray that we would have that among us, that there would be people whose lives are changed on the spot, that they would tell of your greatness and that we would rejoice together and praise your name for what you've done. It's in your name I pray these things. Amen.